Well, good morning. You know, it's the strangest thing. I'm as nervous this morning as I was the first time I ever spoke. It's, it's always been that way. It seems like every time is the first time. <laughs> and as I sat in the room this morning thinking about this morning, I was... I was overcome with the only word I know to use is joy. What a joy it is to be alive and what a joy it is to be with you this morning. I've told the story of <clears throat> a man who was being hanged. And they put a noose around his neck, and they asked him if he had any last words. And he said, yes, this is really going to teach me a lesson. <laughs> I want to talk about a lesson that I've learned this morning, and I hope it's not too late. <laughs> I hope it's not too late. I guess I was 13 or 14 years old, living in West Virginia, and there was a missionary who came to speak at the church in Charleston, West Virginia. And we just started going to church, and, but for some reason my parents decided that we would go hear this missionary. And as I sat there as a boy in West Virginia, Without great career paths ahead, maybe I could go into a coal mine or maybe I could go into one of the chemical plants that were prolific in that area. But that night, this missionary said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And something set my heart on fire that night. And I saw the possibility of a new future. Maybe a different course, maybe a different way through the world. And as I've thought over the years about that, what we call the Great Commission, it was an invitation to go to any and every human being next door, across town, at work, at school, or throughout the world with the best news that a human being could ever hear. 
It wasn't a great commission that simply meant going to a foreign land, but it meant a great commission that was to go to any and every human being who appears before us. That's the Great Commission. And that we, as followers of Christ, are filled with a kind of news, filled with a kind of joyfulness, filled with a kind of light, filled with a kind of love, filled with a kind of spirit that could ignite and enliven every human being that we met. That was the Great Commission. Now, I recognize that we're living in times of enormous change, and that's disconcerting to us, that the world seems changing. Uh, church, as those who are older have known it, is changing. Everything about church seems like it's changing. Preaching seems like it's changing. Worship seems like it's changing. That everything is moving. Everything seems to be at risk. And many of us are pretty sure what we don't want anymore. We're pretty sure about a kind of religion that we've practiced that seems inadequate for our time. We're sure about what we don't want to be, but are we sure about what we do want to be? If we leave something behind or we perfect something, then we are moving toward what? And it is that vision that seems less clear to us today. We know what we don't want to be, and many of us have referred to that as legalism. I've never really liked that term. It seems a bit too reductionistic to me because even though I came up through a period that was generally referred to as such, yet I am who I am partly because I came up through that. And I've always thought that as we think of the past, there's only one way to ever think about it, and that is to be sure that we take the fire from the altar and not the ashes. Every generation has ashes and every generation has fire. But to move forward and to grow, we always take the fire from the altar. And that's what I feel this morning. That's what I feel in my heart of hearts, in my gut, is still after 81 years on the planet, I still feel that fire. And in my own life, there is what I would call a before and an after, a very clear before and a very clear after, and something that happened to me between those two periods. And I want us to think about what that was this morning, and maybe 
maybe a couple of responses to my own preaching point that out. Uh, when I was still at Fried Hardeman College then, once in a while, a church in Nashville, their preacher would be away, and they would invite some student from Fried Hardeman to come preach. And I was selected to go preach at the Waverly Belmont Church, and I was so excited. I was a college student. I was going to a big city and speak to a big church. And I thought I would talk about love's part and man's salvation. Now, there are several things wrong with that title, as you know. And mostly it was about what the Bible said about love than it was about love. And as after it was over, people were coming out and they were patting my hand and encouraging the young minister. But then there was this one old man. And he came up, made sure he had my attention, eyes focused on mine, clasped my hand and said, son, you've got a long way to go. It's the only comment I remember <laughs> that morning. But then about 15 years later, and after this something happened to me, after this something happened that changed everything about me, what I believed, and my life, about 15 years later, I was in Austin, Texas, and I was speaking one Sunday night at the church that Rural Lemons then preached at. And I was a little exercised during the sermon, and afterwards people came out and patting my hands and commenting. And then there was one old woman. <laughs> she came up, she was sort of bent, but her eyes very alive and beady. And she made sure she had my attention, and then she said, hot damn. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. <laughs> but I thought, well, maybe, maybe I've made some gains with my with my, with my own message. I had a dozen years uh, with a couple of churches in Arkansas, uh, late 50s, 60s. Uh, Jerry Morgan is here I think, somewhere this morning. Yeah, here's Jerry. So I have to be very careful what I say because Jerry's been there the whole time. And I will say that he has a grandson whose middle name they named Saunders. That's the first. I've got namesakes around the world, but that's the first Saunders. And is that Adrian's? What the first name is? Brant. Brant Saunders Morgan. Isn't that lovely? 
I, those were good years, and good things happened during those years. My time at Corning was one of the happy times of my life. And some good things happened in the church there. But inside me, there was a struggle. I was having difficulty putting together what I was doing at church with go into all the world and preach the gospel. And for me, that meant going into all of Corning and the surrounding county and then beyond. And this became a certain war that was going on inside. And I was struggling with trying to associate the way I was thinking, the way I was preaching, and what I was doing with Jesus and what Jesus did and how he spoke. And somehow there was, there, there felt like there was some disconnect between those two things. And it wasn't that what I was doing outwardly what was bad. It was not bad. And yet there was something stirring within me that came to a head, and that's when I made my journey around the world through about 80 nations. And I made the journey not to sightsee, but to heartsee. I read the passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But what did that mean? What does God so love the world mean? The only way that I've come to understand that is that God so loved one human being, no matter who that human being is, what that human being has done, or where that human being is. That's the only way I know how to read that. And so as I traveled the world, I wanted to see these human beings that God loved and that God gave a son for. I saw the poorest on earth. I saw things that continued to challenge what I thought, what I said, the way I lived, and the way I loved. And that's when the thing happened to me that changed everything. I entered a profound crisis of life. I entered that moment, uh, which has been referred to as the dark night of the soul, in which I lost everything. I lost everything I'd ever thought about God. And I kept thinking to God, 
I don't know who you are. I don't know how to relate to you. I don't know what you want. My understanding of Scripture went up in flames. My understanding of church meeting at a certain place within four walls went up in smoke. I had a reputation as a rising young minister. I was in demand for gospel meetings. I was doing a lot of work with Herald of Truth radio and television. I was chairman of the board of a small college in Arkansas. I had something of a reputation. But it seemed like as everything went up in flames, then all any hope or dream that had ever been attached to me and to my work in ministry was at risk. Who was I and what would I be? And that went on a good long time. I was one empty, lost soul. And that's when I discovered the two things that became the greatest thing in my life. When I mention them, I don't know what you will think about them. I don't, because the difficulty is that there's a certain familiarity to them that render them almost without power. And so we will try to restore a little of that power again. And I did not know these two things at the time. These two things emerged as I've thought about it over the years and what it was that happened. What it was that made this difference between my life before and my life after. What it was that somehow opened the world to me. That opened human beings to me who were closed before. That opened human beings to me that before I judged. That opened human beings that before I condemned that opened human beings that before I excluded. I didn't know what to call it. I just know that everything was taken away. I left everything behind. And I was as empty as a person could be. Maybe that's a little bit of what Paul was getting at when he spoke of Christ emptying himself to become a human being. But what I've come over the years to recognize that happened were number one, I got out of my own way. And number two, that opened the way for a life 
that overflows and gushes up and with the potential of love for every human being on the face of the earth. Now let's look at, look at those for a moment. The first one is getting out of your own way. Now, that's a translation, of course. The way Jesus put it was, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. But the words deny self even have a certain negative ring to them. It, it's, it's hard. Maybe 2 Corinthians 12, 9 helps us with that. When Paul writes, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so maybe, maybe the denial of self, maybe the getting out of the way opens the way for a certain love that then can be shed abroad in our hearts. And so I want us to think about the getting out of our way, that denial. That in some way it's the, it's the story of the Bible. The, the Bible begins with a human being made, listen to this, in the very explicit image of God. And all the rest of the Bible is about that. All the rest of the Bible is about how a human being can realize that image, how a human being can live in that image for the rest of life. And, and then along comes the story of Adam and Eve, and they got in their own way to an enormous loss. There's the story of Cain, who gets in his own way and murders his brother. There's the story of the children of Israel headed to the promised land who got in their own way and only two got to enter. There's the story of Moses, marvelous leader that he was, but who somehow got in his own way and he himself was denied entrance into the promised land. And so throughout the entire story of the Old Testament, it's a story of human beings who get in the way of the realization of God's image. How easy it is for us to get in our own way. Now, I want to look at a couple of big things first. And this can be misunderstood, but it's worth thinking about. One of the things that got in my way was church. And maybe more specifically, the institutional church. I want us to think for just a moment about how preoccupied we are with the concept of church. That when we think about what's wrong, we think about our church. When we think about 
what we're leaving behind. We think of our church. And when we think about trying to fix something, we start thinking about fixing Sunday morning. And so we have overhauled Sunday morning, bringing in different kinds of music and praise teams and changing the order of worship. And we've done a lot on Sunday morning, as if somehow if we fix Sunday morning, we will have fixed everything. The preoccupation, the fixation of Sunday morning as church can be a problem. Now, to help us with that, just think of this. Think of how much time you spend in that assembly. Now, let's say in a 168-hour week, let's say you spend three hours. It's not much out of a week, is it? Three hours out of 168? What about the 165 hours? Do you think that maybe that too could be part of the problem? Over the course of a year, you spend 156 hours in church. I know you're loving my math here. <laughs> and you spend 8,580 hours out of the assembly. Now, when we think about how we fix things, when we think about what's gone wrong, why in the world would we spend almost all of our time on that little bit of time we spend together on Sunday morning? and not focus. During the course of a year, you spend about a week in an assembly. And you spend 51 weeks out of the assembly. Now, I hope nobody thinks that I'm talking down church. And if that's what you think, then I'm sorry, but I doubt if I can help you much. What we're looking at right now is that when there is a great commission, that Sunday morning assembly can't do it. But all these hours that we spend out of the assembly, we could do it. Because the truth is, in many, many communities across America, on Monday morning, there are Christian people at every single level of society. They're in every institution. They're in school systems. They're in hospitals. They're in state offices. They're sweeping floors. They're in factories. Do you think that maybe the thing that may most trouble us is, is what's happening there? 
Maybe that's the problem that we ought to be looking at. That the truth is that the church is really a big tent. That from the very beginning, there was never a uniformity of belief among followers of Christ. Historians are telling us that even in the first century, there were multiple ways of looking at Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. That we're never probably, the church is never going to have some kind of uniformity that is known by everyone in every place across the world. This is a big tent. Because the church actually it exists in so many different ways. The church exists when we assemble in a group like this, when we assemble on Sunday morning, but it also assembles in small groups. It also assembles around dinner tables and lunch tables, where two, because at the heart of the church is this simple fact announced by Jesus himself when he said, where two or three are gathered together, note in my name. Who think like I'm thinking, who's, who have my mind, whose speech is like my speech, who treat people the way I treat people, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There's always a problem with Jesus. Because we're more in love with the word Jesus, maybe, than we are the life of Jesus. It's easy for us to say, Jesus this, and raise our hands to Jesus. But when it comes to treating people like Jesus treated them, then that's something else. That requires a denial of self. It requires a getting out of your own way and your own biases, and your own prejudices, and your own fears. I cannot imagine of any reason that Christ would have ever established one more institution if there had been some institution somewhere who could welcome the people that he most ministered to that would welcome that adulterous woman, that would welcome the Samaritan woman, that could, weapon, that could recognize and receive and welcome the blind and the lepers and the publicans and the sinners. The reason the world needed one more place was because the institutions in existence at that time could not receive the people Jesus spent his time with. And so he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will be a place for my people. Now the truth is that religion dies and churches die. It's reported that Christ wrote to the church at Sardis in Revelation, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. 
The reason the church dies, some people say, well, it's because of modernism, it's because the rise of secularism, or it's because the world is just becoming so immoral. No. When a church dies, it dies by its own hand. When a church dies, it can only be by suicide. Jesus said of his church, the church he would build, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. When a church dies, it isn't because Jesus was mistaken and it became a church the gates of hell finally prevailed against. It depends on what lies at the heart of the church. If the mind of Christ lies at the heart of the church, then we will say with one voice, the gates of hell cannot prevail against that. And so sometimes the church gets in our way that we have this fixation in the same way that the temple got in the way of the religious people in Jesus' day. And Jesus said, in the face of the temple, the day is coming when not one stone will be left on top of another. That a preoccupation with church can really get in the way. Because the church finally is the presence of a human being who has taken Christ seriously that is joined by another human being or two. That's what it is. And that's the vision that we must have restored. But there's a second thing that gets in the way. And this one, too, is a little bit unnerving because it's the Bible. My, think of the thousands of years of controversy that have existed around this book. And maybe one of the reasons is because there are upwards of 31,000 verses in the Bible after they divided it up into chapters and verses. And of course, with 31,000 and with them viewed as all basically having the same weight, one can find a verse of scripture to justify absolutely anything that one wants to justify. And yet, the Bible is so central to my own life and my own vision. But the reason it is so central is because I believe with all of my heart that the greatest vision for human life found in the briefest form and with the greatest hope is contained in this book. It's the vision, the vision of a human being. And so how do we escape this? The way we've dealt with the Bible has left us split over and over and over again. It's left us with division after division after division. 
all in the context of Jesus praying that we would all be one, that we would live in harmony and peace with one another. Surely there's something wrong with the way we're going about this book. Surely there's something wrong with the way we're reading the book. The Old Testament has become such a problem for so many people. So, let's let Jesus help us. When all else fails, turn to Jesus. Jesus helped us see how to read the Hebrew Bible. They once asked Jesus, Jesus, when you look at this big Bible, the, the Hebrew Bible, what do you think's great about it? And Jesus said, well, here's what's great. To love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That's the way to read the Old Testament. Now, I didn't know that for a long time. It's just how to read it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of things that are confusing, all kinds of things that are difficult, all kinds of things that I would read the Old Testament and stumble over and try to figure out. How could God have ever asked that? How could the people have ever done that? But then I started reading it, like Jesus said, you ought to read it. And that's about loving God and loving your neighbors yourself. All the way back to Leviticus 19 are the words, love your neighbor as yourself. And when I started reading the 39 books of the Old Testament, just looking for what Jesus said, look for. When you read the, always look for this. Always look to how to see your neighbor. Always look to how to love your neighbor. And suddenly, the riches of the Hebrew Bible began to open up. It's just how to read it. And then he added a little bit to that because when he was healing on the Sabbath day or the disciples were picking corn on the Sabbath day, and there were people who objected. But if you look at the Old Testament through the lens of loving your neighbor as yourself, then picking that corn when you're hungry on the Sabbath made perfect sense. And when you read the Old Testament through that lens and Jesus is healing on the Sabbath day, his healing on the Sabbath day made perfect sense. And all the others who read it differently were wrong. They were wrong. In both those instances, there were people ready to quote the scripture, but they were wrong because they misread the text. They read it. With the adulterous woman, there are two ways to read the scripture. The men who brought her had scripture. The law says she's caught in adultery. Stone her. 
They could give you book, chapter, and verse. But they were wrong because they didn't read their scripture as Jesus said, read it, love your neighbor as yourself. When you read it that way, then what Jesus did with the adulterous woman made perfect and beautiful sense. Can we hear this? This isn't just something for us to nod to. This is a challenge to each of our lives as we meet individuals that religion largely rejects. If you want to know those to whom Jesus was drawn, then look at that crowd that religion of his day rejected. And that's what reading the Hebrew Bible by loving your neighbor as yourself, that's what that means. You know, we like this passage that we all fall short of the glory of God. You know why? It's because we've fallen so short of the glory of a human being. If I miss my neighbor, if I miss the glory of the human being who lives in dung-filled streets, in the poorest country on earth. I will miss the glory of God. The glory of God has to be found in the glory of a human being. And so that was in my way. That somehow I... I couldn't quite see that, and that was what was gnawing away at the inside. So if that's the way we read the Old Testament, what about the New Testament? You know, the New Testament has some pretty hard things in it. Ananias and Sapphira with a lie got hauled out, feet forward, and a tag on their toe. That's hard, isn't it? In the New Testament, you have someone as brilliant as Saul of Tarsus consenting to the stoning of Stephen. That's in the New Testament. Now, we read the papers today of certain places in the world where they might bury a young woman up to her torso and then they would gather around and throw rocks at her until she was dead. That, too, is in the New Testament. There are hard things in the New Testament. Many interpretations about half of the people of the world, women, that have been used to somehow do damage to women 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why is that? There, there were people who justified slavery by quoting scripture. There are some hard things even in the New Testament, and so we should ask, how should we read the New Testament? And maybe Paul can help us out. Because in his two greatest polemics in Romans and Galatians, in Romans 13, he gets down to the end of this massive presentation. And he says, lest we forget, let me remind you that it's all summed up in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. When he gets to the end of Galatians, another of his great polemics, it's almost as if again he says, and let's not forget this. That it's all summed up in one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, how are we going to read our New Testament? And what words of that New Testament will be in your mouth as you look at other human beings who are Will you read it as Jesus read the Old Testament when he dealt with an adulterous woman? Or will you read it as one who defends keeping a slave on the property? How are you going to read it? Will you read what it says about women let your women keep silent in the church. Yes, you can fill your mouth with that. But you can also interpret from loving your neighbor as yourself when you can hear Paul say that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male or female. And so we're in our own way with our own scripture in the same way that the religious in Jesus' day were in their own way with their own scripture because they failed to see what was at the heart of it. It's easy to get in our way. So, if we're going to get out of the way, with this looking way to look at it, what I found in my own life was I'd meet a human being and suddenly I had all kinds of measurements that I was applying. Was that person a member of the church? Was that person, is, are, are they a member of my church? The church I think is right. I looked at a person and I thought, well, yes, I, I know this sin about them. Or I looked at a human being and I thought, 
of their past, their nationality, their race, their gender. That somehow, though I wanted to love, I felt that nearly every human being I met, I could easily find something wrong with, something to judge, something to condemn. And if that's the way, if that's filling our minds when we meet a human being, can we really expect to have much relationship with them? It's, it's, it's just, it's not a good way. And so again, I remember reading a book. Uh, this young minister uh, was starting out and he had his church and he had his manuscripts for his sermons. And he would get up into this sort of country church and he would read what the scholars said and what the academics said and all of that. And, you know, they were all sitting there nodding and they were with him. But then they traded out pulpits and he got over to, I think it was an African-American church, and he got his manuscript all out and he was reading about the academics. And about ten minutes into it, he heard a voice from the audience say, Help him, Jesus. <laughs> and he said, that's the first time a church had ever talked back. And then he began to unpack that. So at any point, anybody, if I'm getting lost up here, if I just hear somebody say, help him, Jesus, well, I'll, know, I'll know to get back on track. But in this matter of how to look at individuals and how to be with individuals and how to love your neighbor as yourself, let's let Jesus help us. He sits down by the well with a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, number one, is a woman. That's a problem in Jesus' day. Number two, she was a member of a different race. She was a Samaritan. Number three, she was a member of a different religion that worshipped in a different mountain. And number four, she had had a slew of husbands. Maybe polygamy on the installment plan. She had a lot of husbands. And so Jesus sits there and he thinks, oh my, how in the world will this woman ever have a chance? Wrong gender, wrong race, wrong religion, and a bevy of husbands. So he starts telling her about each one of those. No, he didn't, did he? He just skated right past every one of them. It took me years to see that. And what did he confront her with? Living water. That he said, if you get this, you'll never thirst again. That somehow the living water, when understood, could deal with gender, with race, with religion, and with a half dozen husbands. 
can we ever, ever get to that point? If we, if we want religion, if we want faith, if we want the way of Christ to have resurgent in this country, it won't be simply because of what we fix on Sunday morning, but it'll be because of the way we live all those other hours of the week and months and years. So in the midst of all of that, I'm going to come to the second part, and then we're going to unpack that tomorrow. Because it's one thing to, to, to see the larger picture, but what are the steps? What are the, what are the ways you get from where we are to where we want to be? And tomorrow we're going to look at step by step by step at how we grow bigger hearts. And so the second part was, was getting this overflowing life. Now again, that's a translation because Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have, and have it abundantly. Now, for a long time that was a sermon title and I could preach a sermon on that. But then suddenly, when I got out of my own way, and little by little, the power of Christ registered in my weakness, when somehow I was able to escape my own mind, and the mind of Christ began to take residence. That somehow when it became more than a verse of scripture to quote for me to say, I am crucified with Christ. I got out of my own way. And so now it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. That abundance overflowing abundance and so we're going to touch this one really quickly the Sermon on the Mount is full of abundance. read the Beatitudes and every single Beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted in every single one of the Beatitudes, you move from, from a certain state of mind to this glorious abundance, this glorious overfilling. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, scarcity always at the end of that. But I say unto you, and then there's abundance. He says, if someone compels you to go one mile, don't just go one Go abundantly. Go to. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. That everywhere all over Jesus' teaching is this incredible abundance. And so I'm going to suggest this as we close this morning. We need a new catechism. Now, I know the word catechism isn't very well known among folks out of my tradition. But really a catechism is a system of questions and answers 
that help define who we are. Now we had, we know what our catechism was. A catechism that everyone in churches of Christ knew. There were five steps of salvation. There were five acts of worship. There were elders and deacons. The women were to keep silent in the churches and so forth. Everyone knew it. Every child knew it. That the church was one in what I'm just loosely calling a catechism. Now, you've said, well, that was, we, we needed a little bit more than that. But what's the new one? And I'm not going to give you a new catechism this morning. I am going to suggest some things because it'd be better if this is worked out among us instead of somebody announcing it though I must confess I'm working on this every single day. And I may find it. I may make a suggestion uh, if you'll give me another 30 or 40 years <laughs> to do it. But here's what happened to me. And I'm just going to read these off, then we'll come back tomorrow. I fell in love. That's the only way I can describe it. I fell in love. I had fallen in love with the five steps of salvation. I loved it. I thought that was it. I'd fallen in love with five acts of worship. I'd fallen in love with that. But then I fell in love with this. I fell in love with Jesus' statement that... A human being was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for a human being. I fell in love with it because that helped me to understand the Bible. I fell in love with this great commandment to love neighbor as self. And where the five acts of worship one time was on my lips. Now what became on my lips, and if you've heard me through the years, this was at the center of almost everything that I've ever taught. I fell in love with this statement I referred to earlier that God so loved the world that he gave his son, realizing that that includes every human being on the face of the earth. I fell in love with the idea that I would, by getting out of my own way, have so much abundance that I could love my neighbor, my enemies, expecting nothing in return. I fell in love with the statement, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the unjust. I fell head over heels in love with that. I fell head over heels in love with Jesus being able to say to a woman who had never amounted to anything in anybody's eyes, including her own, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I wanted to be there. I fell in love with the idea that Paul suggested 
that you count others better than yourself and that you live in the interest of others. I just fell in love with it. And again, if you've heard anything I've done through the years, you would recognize that at being central to everything that I've ever taught. I fell in love that I didn't have to look at human beings anymore from a human point of view. I just fell in love with that. Because everybody comes with a history. Everyone comes with a past. Everyone comes with a record of failure. But I fell in love that there was a different way to look at every human being. I fell in love with Paul's grand statement that in Christ, nationality and status and gender do not matter. I fell head over heels in love with that. And I fell head over heels in love with Paul saying that no matter how well you preach or how much you know or how much you give, even if you let your body be burned as a martyr and you don't have love, it's nothing. The change in me happened when I began to sense how important it is to get out of my own way so that God could fill me with an abundance that gave me love and mercy and forgiveness for everyone on earth. How do we get from where we are to there? That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. And I'll leave you with this. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And with that, we will say amen.